welcome to The Buzz, the podcast of the Jazz Journalists Association, where we discuss news and views with professionals in the jazz media. I'm your host, Andrew Gilbert, talking with two distinguished colleagues, John Murph and James Gavin, about the demise of the magazine Jazz Times. I'm a Berkeley freelance journalist who's written about jazz since 1989. John Murph is a Washington, D.C. writer who's contributed to Downbeat, NPR, The Root, The Washington Post, and The Atlantic, among many other outlets. He hosts a weekly radio program at Eaton Hotel, D.C. James Gavin is a journalist and author who's written best-selling biographies of Chet Baker, Peggy Lee, Lena Horne, and most recently, George Michael. Thank you both for joining me. Let me sum up the sad sequence of events that's brought us together. For five decades, Jazz Times was one of the leading English language jazz publications. And I'd argue from around 1990 to about 2018, it was often the best and most interesting magazine covering the U.S. scene. In February, a small media company called the Bebop Channel purchased Matavor Media, which owned Jazz Times and a portfolio of specialty magazines. The Bebop Channel is run by the husband and wife team of trombonist Gregory Charles Royal and Sue Barris Royal. They proceeded to cancel all assignments for the May issue and beyond, and laid off most of employees. While they've published three or four issues since then, I think it's fair to say that Jazz Times has ceased to be a journalistic enterprise. So, time for some full disclosure. I wrote for Jazz Times intermittently from 2005 until my last assignments were killed. The magazine owed me $900 dating back to the fall of 2022, and since then I've received about 300, some of that coming in $9 installments every week or two. I've been in touch with many writers owed money, and communications with the new owners has been minimal. I should also note that we invited the Royals to participate in this podcast. She declined, and he didn't respond. Murph, you're one of the writers responsible for Jazz Time's glory years. A few stories that stand out for me are your piece on David Bowie's influence on Donnie McCaslin, The Gig of a Lifetime, your groundbreaking essay, Rhapsody and Rainbow, Jazz and the Queer Aesthetic, and one of your early pieces for the magazine, a profile of violinist Billy Bang. What's your history with the magazine? Well, I want to say thank you again for inviting me to talk about this. My history with Jazz Times began when Crystal Porter was the editor, and that was in actually the early aughts. And Christopher and I both had experience working at the Washington City Paper. And I was first assigned doing some of the hearsay essays profiles, and expanded into writing some columns and some feature stories. And after Christopher left, I was edited by Evan Haga and then Mac Randall. All three of those have been excellent editors. Are you owed any money now? Or what's, your, what's your status? The last features that I wrote on George Butler his uh, legacy, and I did a complimentary web essay on the 40th anniversary of Winter Marcellus's debut album. Like other people, I'm getting the 1% drip of funds. It doesn't take care of one's financial obligations when you have written an article have researched an article, 
And the research behind the article goes way, it takes much more longer time than the writing of an article. And a writer is counting on that money that is owed to him. If you're owed $900, getting $9 every week is not going to take care of your bills. Indeed. James, seeing your byline in Jazz Times always guaranteed an enthralling ride. You know, I'm thinking about your deep dive into the sad life of vocalist Ann Richards, your essay about homophobia and jazz from 2001, another groundbreaking piece, and a much more recent profile of Flora Parim. Where where do you stand with Jazz Times at this point? Are you owed money from pieces? I was never paid for the Flora Porin cover story, which is June of 2023. And from my due amount of $600, I've received perhaps three $6 payments. That's all. That would have been June of 2022, right? The, it was, it was last year. Did yeah. I say 2023? Yeah. June of 2022. Yes. Right. So it's over a year ago. You know, Andy, I had looked into small claims court thinking naively that when you file a small claims court claim and it is approved by the judge, which which this would have been, then you get your money. That is not necessarily the case. It's probably not often the case because the papers can well be sent to your debtor, but no enforcement takes place. So they are free to pay you or not pay you. It's a nasty situation and a sour conclusion to 25 years of writing for this magazine, which has been very important to me. I began in, I think the year was 1998, under the aegis of Lee Mergner, wonderful Lee, the publisher of Matavor Media. And I was so happy always writing for Jazz Times because they let me write about anything I wanted to. I was able to do features of which I am immensely proud. The Ann Richards story, the story of Mrs. Stan Kenton, Stan Kenton's vocalist from the mid-50s through the early 60s, and her tumultuous life, which ended in a seeming suicide at the age of 46. I had yearned to write that story since I was a teenager. That and, for example, my article about Here's my ASCAP Deems Taylor Virgil Thompson Award for my article about Slug Saloon, the bucket of blood jazz club in the East Village where Lee Morgan was murdered. I have a relationship with Brazil, and for Jazz Times, I was able to write a piece about jazz in Rio. The homophobia in jazz article meant a great deal to me to write. And so on. All of these features that I probably could not have been paid to write anywhere else but Jazz Times. The editing process was always a breeze, first under Lee and then under Evan Haga and then under Mac Randall. Love those guys. So I had a good thing going. It was naive of me to think that it would go on and on and on because of the state of magazine publishing and newspapers and so forth. So I should be grateful for a 25-year run at Jazz Times, but it is so disheartening on so many levels to see the hands in in which the magazine now resides and the way they're running things. Before we sort of dive into that a little bit, I want to echo your 
observation and sentiment about the value of the publication. I know I did some of my favorite work for Jazz Times, and I wasn't a prolific contributor, but a piece, a sort of deep dive into the rise of Israeli jazz musicians on the New York scene is a piece I don't think I could have written anywhere else, or it would have been difficult to place, you know, a piece on the relationship between Harold Mayburn and Eric Alexander, really looking at that. Um, again, that, that could have been for Downbeat, but I had the relationship with Jazz Times and was writing for them. And they, as you said, you know, the editing process went well. It was always a pleasure to do those longer pieces, which for me were often a challenge because I tend to write more newspaper size, you know, 750 to 1,000 word pieces. So to suddenly dive into a three or 4,000 word piece was, it was always a real challenge and a pleasure. So the loss of that is, I'm still sort of contending with that and thinking, well, where it looks like at this point, we've got one major jazz publication in in the country and um, Downbeat seems to be doing well, but, you know, it's, it's just such a loss. I couldn't agree with you more. I think Downbeat is wonderful, but Jazz Times was special because of the breadth of coverage that they offered. The pieces that you and John have written, which are outside the box of normal jazz journalism, we were able to get ideas that were sometimes going out on a limb. And our wonderful editors there would let us run for them. I did a piece on an album that I treasure called Love is a Drag. An album made in, it was recorded around late 1959, early 1960 on a teeny tiny label. It was an anonymous man singing love songs to men with jazz accompaniment. This album had always fascinated me. And then when the identity of the mystery singer, a former Stan Kenton boy singer named uh, Gene Howard, was divulged, then the story was ripe for telling. and. I initially asked for, I don't remember how many words, let's say 2,500 words. And I said, oh, Mac, this this story is great. Can I have another 1,200 words? And he gave them to me. (laughs) Oh, what a luxury that was. So those pieces will stand forever. And I'm so proud of them and so grateful, as I said to those guys. And... um, not anticipating where this would all lead. Murph, are you finding there you have stories that in previous years you would have pitched to jazz times or it would have been a natural to bring them there that sort of are, are homeless at this point? So far, maybe. Going back to the last article, uh, Dr. George Butler, whom is a figure in which I was just amazed that he was so prolific, yet he was a footnote. And to Jane's point, one of the things I love doing is kind of tapping into the redacted stories, like figuring out why these stories have not been told. So much talk about Bruce Lundvall. There's so much talk about Tom Lee Puma. And here's this Black figure who was very important to the shape of jazz with the rise of the young lines of the 80s in which not only did it usher in a new spate of great jazz leaders it shaped the entire ecosystem in jazz 
how that person was a footnote. And I would think, I just thought that that was just an easy sell. And I pitched it to other people. Crickets. And Jazz Times not only gave me a place to write it, they gave me space to write it in a way that it should be told. I originally pitched it as an overdue ovation, and Max said, this story is too big for that. But he did not tell me not to write it. As a writer who somewhat tussles with imposter syndrome and have people say, oh, you should write a, write a book, write a book, write a book. And with Jazz Times, having that space to really, really explore a topic and go very, very vertical with it, it kind of helped me think that me writing something more expansive beyond an essay is possible. And I think editors such as Mac and Evan has done it too and continues to do that at Title for giving us the opportunity to grow in that manner. I, I love the George Butler piece. And it was, you know, as someone who basically grew up buying CDs that he had produced, you know, had his name on them. And I had no sense of who he was. And you evoked him so beautifully. I mean, I felt I was like in his presence. So Gregory Charles Royal sort of cast in, in some of his communications that the Bebop Channel's acquisition of jazz times as a blow for racial justice and as a now a black run jazz publication covering a black American art form. And part of that was that a part of the heat I feel like from that's been generated from, you know, former writers for jazz times has been basically claim described jazz times that it was a bastion of white jazz criticism, which was a charge that had enough truth to, to sting, um, but obviously disregarded the long history of impressive contributions by, I, I would say, at least a dozen black journalists, you know, present company, um, Ron Scott, Greg Tate, Willard Jenkins, Kaylee Ender Williams, and, and on and on. I, I guess that the, 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 Question is not even a question. It's it, it. It seems like if Jazz Times then became an important voice, that point of view might think, well, I might not agree, but it's somewhat vindicated. And I guess what's been so sad is what's happened so far is that there's been no journalism really or, or minimal journalism whatsoever. So I, I guess that's just your your guys' thoughts on on that. Where, where that is. May I, John, may I go first? <laughs> Show me the racism in jazz times. If many of the writers or even most of the writers were white, all of us gave black artists a forum to speak and tell their stories. We proclaimed their artistry. And I fail to see how it is a blow. It, it is a triumph of, of racial justice to turn the magazine into a forum for subliterate writing and reporting and for racism, basically, show me the advantage of that. I don't know. I, I think we do have to look at the system of, of systematic racism and gender equality when it comes to the editorial power 
that has gone into a lot of publications. Yes, jazz science has given power and voice to and promoted a lot of great black jazz musicians, but you cannot ignore that in the history of that publication, to my knowledge, there has not been a black editor that was helping shape that voice. In jazz, and I've written for several publications, seldom have I been edited by a black editor for a quote-unquote jazz publication. At Downbeat, there was Hillary Brown, and that was my first time being edited by a woman, and that was rare. So we cannot not say that that didn't exist. My issue with it is, with what happened with Jazz Times, is to intuit what James Gavin and what you said, there's too many competent Black writers out there for Jazz Time to be looking like this in the name of Blackness. And at the same time, while that was happening, Willow Jenkins, who is my great mentor, had this great book, It's Only a Few of Us. And talking about the plight of Black journalists, and it kind of undermines that whole effort. It undermines a lot of great Black writers who have done the time, who have pulled away, and who still is probably not going to get the shine and the recognition that they rightfully deserve in terms of how much work they have done. John, those are great points. And I would like to ask you, how could Jazz Times have done it differently? What should Jazz Times have done to take it more toward that goal that you just outlined? Well, I think right now we've been seeing a lot of DEI initiatives post-George Floyd. Maybe haven't been looking, but when editorial positions for most of those publications happen, not just freelance, but like editorial positions, I seldom see the job announcements. Do you? So you seldom see the job announcement. We have to look at opportunity gaps. And there has been studies of opportunity gaps that happens, a disparity with people of color and women for cisgender white men. So if Jazz Time was going to do that, A, first of all, they need to have a commitment to do it. (laughs) And, you know, diversifying beyond the performative. Another thing that we a lot of people seldom talk about in these DEI initiatives is the E, equity. So you also have to look at a generational wealth gap disparity between Black America and white America. So if you want to attract Black people who, for the most part, don't have the generational wealth or the socioeconomic cushion of some of our white counterparts, we have to make it equitable where they can actually take on that position. It's almost, it's very, I work in the law as a law journalist, and there's been talk about why there aren't more people of color in environmental law, even though environmental law is crucial to 
the survival of people of color. It's a public interest sector. It's a sector in which you have to prepare to lose more than you win. It's a sector where you got some black people already saddled with so much debt. And then you have to check on possibly another STEM related course. So it's a situation that may not be feasible for some people to take on. That's a whole other dynamic in terms of DEI. I mean, I think this is what you're describing is, is really it's a conundrum for journalism writ large, really exactly what you're saying. We're going to come back with part two of this discussion because I, we've really barely started to, to scratch the surface of some of the things I'd like to talk about. So let's let's come back and talk a little bit more about sort of what's happening with Jazz Times now and what the landscape looks like. I'm Susan Brink for the Jazz Journalists Association. Thank you for listening to The Buzz, a podcast produced by the JJA. We release new episodes regularly on all the major platforms. To learn more about us, go to jjanews.org. This episode was edited by Wiz Petta. The John Michaels composition, Big Vic is our theme music. Toodaloo. Toodaloo.